Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. I've got Beth White with me today. Hello, Beth. Hello, Alex. This is the first time we've done one together, isn't it? It is, yes. I was going to say, I did a podcast with Beth the first time yesterday, Alina the other week, so I'm slowly getting around all the different hosts. But yes, it's nice to, to do one for you for the first time. Yes, absolutely. And we've got a returning guest today, haven't we? We have indeed. So we have Dr Emma Wells, who is an award-winning academic, broadcaster and historian specialising in ecclesiastical and architectural history. Emma has previously written about pilgrim routes in the British Isles, but today she is here to talk about her new book, Heaven on Earth, The Lives and Legacies of the World's Greatest Cathedrals. Hi Emma, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's lovely to have you on the podcast again. So if we kick off with the first question, so the Middle Ages are known um, as an era, as a time period of great castles, but there were also many great cathedrals. So if you could give us a little bit of an introduction to um, to the cathedrals of the time and, and who they were constructed for. Yeah, well, um, my book actually features 16 of these, although, of course, there were hundreds um, and I had to narrow them down some way. But um of course, the the great, I suppose, era of castle building d- started after William the Conqueror and the Norman Conquest. And it's also at that time that we really get to see how um, and when our great cathedrals are constructed, which is sort of the beginning in England of the Norman era, right into the Gothic cathedral, um, the Gothic style, which is sort of 12th century onwards. So we leave the Romanesque, the Norman, go into the Gothic, into the medieval era. And in terms of who they're constructed for, well, that's it's quite a good question, really, because we tend to think today that churches are constructed for, I suppose, us, you know, worshippers, people walking into them. And yes, that's true in some respects, but we're only, you know, the everyday layman and laywoman is only 
sort of resides in a proportion of it, you know, a very small portion, really. So they are built as a representation of heaven on earth, hence the title of the book, but also the heavenly Jerusalem, as is depicted in the Bible in the book of Revelation. So they are literally a representation of that, and they are therefore largely monastic communities or secular canons um, who worship within them. So they are, they are built for those rather than everyday worshippers. This is brilliant. Um, you mentioned 16 of them in the book. Um, how did you, you've got Saint-Denis in there, Chartres, Salisbury, amongst others. How did you go about picking them and which one was your favourite? Very difficult, with great yeah. difficulty. <laughs> um, I What I did was I tried to choose cathedrals that, um, well, they actually do pretty much encompass the entirety, the entire span of cathedral building for one thing. So we start with the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul and Constantinople as was right through to Florence and then the birth of the Renaissance. And then obviously the Gothic period sits pretty much in between that. And then within that, I wanted to choose um, cathedrals that had interesting backstories, I suppose is the easiest way to describe them. So everything from, you know, starting starting chapters with, I don't know, William the Conqueror's hurrying of the North to murders, um, to, you know, to just interesting tidbits about cathedrals that you may not know and about cathedrals that you may know, but things that you may not know about them. So it's, you know, interesting construction tales, interesting tales of, con- of why they were built, who they were built for, um, so that's the 16, largely Northern France and England, because the Gothic style, of course. Um, and my favourite, I, I always say I can never answer this question because they're all, they're all fantastic. They're all interesting. Um, but I would have to say Salisbury is slowly becoming my favourite cathedral because it seems it's built in just under 40 years, which is revolutionary in and of itself. Cathedrals are usually hundreds of years, but it looks quite simple, unassuming. But actually, it has a really interesting tale of that starts from Neighbours from Hell. <laughs> You've got to tell us more. Well, it started over at Old Sarum, which is the you know the Iron Age hill fort at Old Sarum, two miles uh, down the road from where Sarum or Salisbury is today. And it within this Iron Age hill fort, there was the castle, and then there was the secular cathedral, and. In short, A, it's a terrible site to put a cathedral on because the gusts of wind just blow through it. It's windy as heck on top of that Iron Age hillfort. I know, I do tours around it. But also the canons of the cathedral and the governor of the castle, they fought, essentially. They were not friends. Um, they wouldn't allow them back into the hillfort one day. Um, the governor wouldn't allow the canons. And long story short, a couple of the bishops decided... Um, over their sort of tenures, they needed to move the cathedral and Bishop um, Poor did in the end. In 1219, he got a papal bull and cited it two miles, two miles south of where it is, uh, where it was, and started to build New Sarum, um, where it is now. And then Salisbury itself, the town, the city, um, emerged from there. And that's why Salisbury is where it is today. And then if we go back from um, those brilliant stories for a moment to the architecture. So you mentioned the Gothic. Why would you um, say that this style exemplifies some of the world's greatest cathedrals and some of those that feature in your book? 
Well, the Gothic style, if I say to you, cathedral, you probably do think Gothic, a Gothic cathedral. You know, we usually think, I don't know, Yorkminster, Canterbury Cathedral in England. Those are Gothic cathedrals. Um, and the Gothic style held ground for around four centuries. And yes, the apex of it was sort of 12th to 13th, late 13th century. But it really does um, exemplify and is a physical exemplar of the celestial city, the heavenly Jerusalem with, you know, rivers of paradise and jewel and gold encrusted buildings. That's what you see in a cathedral. If you think the great windows, stained glass, they are, you know, your jewels and gems as was described in the heavenly Jerusalem. Um, and of course, our cathedrals were painted on the exterior and interior with, you know, reds and blues and gilding again. So they do look like, as I say, described in the book of Revelation. But also what's so interesting, I think, about them as well is pretty much every aspect has a symbolic meaning behind it and proportion, ratio. They all reflected the harmony of creation. So, you know, how many panels are in a window to the size of a nave, the size of a cloister, everything sort of links and, as I say, has a symbolism, has a meaning behind it. And not only that, um, we tend to think there's an interesting backstory because we tend to think Saint-Denis, the Abbey Church of Saint-Denis and its abbot, Abbot Suger, was the father of Gothic. And in fact, he wasn't. He just put all the bits and pieces you needed for the Gothic style, which included flying buttresses and pointed arches and rib vaulting. He put them all together in one building. But in fact, we'd seen the different ingredients going on for years. So it's just a really interesting time. And I suppose it becomes one of the main aspects and um, examples of how Western civilization really, really moved on during this period. I think what's really interesting as well is this, like you've mentioned already, that 40 years is revolutionary. The span of building is really long, which means there's mm. lots of scope for things to get in the way and, and sort of hinder the building of these cathedrals. And you've got tales in the book of earthquakes, fires, black death. How do these affect the construction of some of the cathedrals that we recognise today? Well, I think we tend to think um, of fire as a detrimental, um, to have a detrimental impact on cathedrals. And of course it does. We saw this at Notre Dame only a couple of years ago. But in fact, the majority of cathedrals have suffered fires, etc., for, uh, you know, several times. Um, I mean, York, I, I want to say one, two, three, four, five blazes, I think, in York's history. Um, but what this allowed for, as it has done, I suppose, at Notre Dame, was for Master Masons to A, see how the work had been constructed before. But it also allowed them, depending on which part had burned down or how much you know change was needed, it allowed them to put their own stamp on things. And therefore, fire was also a sort of avenue, if you will, for solutions and creativity and innovation so out of disaster came you know great triumph really particularly in terms of changes in architecture and breaks in architecture and of course not only not only fire but they are because these are a great mix of calamity evolution revolution um particularly um crossing towers crossing towers were the bane of the medieval mason because these buildings largely weren't constructed to take the weight of you know great crossing towers in the center of a cathedral and you know once a cathedral down the road builds one and builds ones higher than yours you want to make yours even higher you know it's sort of outdoing the joneses 
And so what happened was, you know, the weight of towers ended up pushing the arches and creating cracks. Um, Wells Cathedral is a great example of this. But what we got was William Joy's wonderful scissor arches, the great strainer arches that sit around the crossing. And when I think when I say Wells Cathedral, you'll probably think they're strainer arches. So one of the greatest innovations in Gothic architecture resulted. And you can't help but think um, when you discuss that, Emma, of um, skyscrapers today in cities where everyone's trying to to make theirs the tallest um, tallest in Europe or the world. And yeah, you know, that's very much that link there from the medieval there in our imagination. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, our cathedrals ever finished as well. I suppose we could say that they never <laughs> really finished. We're constantly adding, we're constantly changing them. Um, and we're always trying now in different ways, whether it's a helter skelter or whatever might be going in your name, like they did at Norwich, we're always trying to outdo. So absolutely. And we've spoken about some of the um, people involved in the construction of the cathedrals and other decisions. Um, are there any tales um, that you come across of women who've um, been involved in the construction? Yeah, now women, they they are quite sparse within the records, of course. They aren't particularly seen uh, or found in the records as masters of their craft, unfortunately. Um but they did labour on the construction sites of um, cathedrals throughout the Middle Ages. Now, of course, you you do find um, aristocratic noble women as patrons. You know, the great example um, is Alice Brewer. She she was an heiress of lands in Devon and she gifted Salisbury Cathedral. Um, it's dark Purbeck marble, what, what it's known for, really, from her quarry. Uh, just down the road, really. And she gave it for 12 years, which shows you know how much perfect marble she had. And so, of course, there are, there are great patrons. But in terms of the everyday women on the site, they some women held specialised roles to a point. So carpenters, um, your everyday masons. But you often find they were held more menial jobs in relation to the to the men so they would be day laborers um you know lugging pails of water different provisions or digging ditches and acting as bricklayers and stonemasons assistants so as i say unfortunately there there are a couple of legends related to um women uh in central europe etc who were supposedly master masons of their craft but it, they're sort of legends that have come down and merged with different different tales of women but we don't unfortunately we don't have any women as master masons you're speaking about masons um i did try reading pillars of the earth and i just lost the will to live with it eventually because it just like i felt like i was watching them build the cathedral in real time it just went on and on and on um but obviously that focuses <laughs> quite heavily on like the actual craftsman doesn't it and the actual construction um in terms of contractors and builders not to give them a bad name but surely it didn't always go like uh, according to plan are there any juicy stories or mishaps that you found Oh gosh, mishaps. There are, there are so many. Um, where do I, where do I start really? Um, yeah, I mean, someone asked me this the other day was what was their take on health and safety? And, you know, did they, (laughs) did they always go according to plan? Um, no. Yeah. <laughs> that, look the at the building of the Empire State Building. There's no health and safety that safety there, and that's 600 years after this. So, yeah, Ex- yeah, e- exactly. This is the point. 
I suppose much of this, um, th- yeah, they are they are sort of masterpieces of cal- miscalculation and uh, crises and havoc um, upon the fabric. But you know, to to start, we have to think that these are man-made and men make mistakes, and especially when you haven't got computer-aided design to you know create your cathedrals. But a lot of the issues seem to stem from um, the fact that the master masons were working on buildings or parts of buildings that were already there. So they are having to add to already constructed portions. And therefore what often results is um, problems because they're trying to patch them together. So I always uh, suggest they're a bit like a house of cards where every stone, you know, plays a pivotal role. And we see this, for example, as I noted at Wells Cathedral, the great strainer arches, that is a result of the fact that they decided to stick um, an extra decorated, and what I mean by that is the decorated Gothic style portion to the top of the crossing tower. The building was never constructed to take that weight. And so the arches of the crossing started to push outwards and crack. Um, what's interesting is William Joy, as I say, he came along and put in these sort of X kiss shaped, really, um, strainer arches but he'd done them before. So the reason he knew that they'd worked is he actually inserted them earlier in Salisbury for the same reason. I mean, Salisbury was for a time, possibly, the tallest spire in England, 404 feet. Um, but again, it want, you know that weight wants to push outwards. And so he put similar type, types of strainer arches in the crossing there, the Eastern Crossing at Salisbury Cathedral. Of course, Ely Cathedral, if I say Ely, you usually think of the octagonal tower. That is a result of the first one falling down. Um, and if you, I, I, I won't say too many because there are so many in the book that I could mention, but if even if you go into the east end of York Minster um, and sort of stand halfway through the choir and look left and right, you can see a sort of concertina effect in the wall because it's sort of kinked and it's where one portion of the east end was started and the next was then finished and they put sort of handy, let's let's say pieces of decoration just to paper over the cracks. So you can see this everywhere. Um, Selby Abbey actually, in fact, has a really good example of this. Um, the arch is essentially falling down, completely wonky, but it's left there and it's stayed for, you know, almost a thousand years. So this works. I think as well, it's like when you figure that someone will start building this cathedral and then their grandchildren's generation are trying to finish it. Um, mm. They're not always going to agree with the original planning, are they? Um, and I guess techniques changed and evolved as well. Yeah, you're, that's exactly the case. But also funding as well. You know, you might have had a great deal of funding for one portion of, say, your East End, and then that dries up. Um or one master mason like a Canterbury Cathedral, William of Sons, he started the East End, the great Trinity Chapel and Corona, um, or what resulted in the Corona at Canterbury. But unfortunately, he fell, he ended up dying, went back home to France, died, and his apprentice, William the Englishman, he finished it. So there is a difference in construction. There is, because one William took over the next. Um, so, of course, that starts. And again, we, we can't say um, we can't mention breaks in construction without mentioning the Black Death, because that was another one that really put a, put a halt to cathedral building. Um, 
And of course, you might have one master mason or several master masons in an area that were just wiped out. So it took a while for those skills to be regained um, and money again to be found. And so you do see real breaks in that sort of 14th, um, the second half of the 14th century. And therefore, that's how we get the perpendicular Gothic style, because afterwards, things have changed. Things have moved on. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And then speaking of funds, um, holy relics um, must have been an important role at this time um, in encouraging pilgrimages to churches and to support the churches. Are there any particular relics that you discuss in the books? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, pretty much every cathedral has has its relic. And the reason for that, you know, we can go right back to Emperor Charlemagne, who said in the turn of the ninth century that every altar should have a relic within it so that it can be essentially sanctified the church could be sanctified it's essentially a sort of mark of authenticity to the church if you will and that created um a real drive and competition for relics because if you had a saint in your you know a great saint in your church in your cathedral that's going to drive pilgrimage to your church and if pilgrims are coming that means money is going to be offered and that's really what drives the cathedral building of the gothic period um in England, St. Cuthbert was the number one saint over in Durham. But of course, in 1170, when um, uh, St. Thomas Becket is, is martyred, he becomes number one over in Canterbury. And so, you know, Durham and Canterbury start to outdo one another because, you know, they want St. Cuthbert back again. So they start, you know, trying to drive pilgrimage and they start elaborating their building and developing them. And so this rivalry goes back and forth and back and forth. The same with York. York has its local saint, St. William of York, and they're trying to, you know, get more pilgrims through the door. And I often, I often sort of relate cathedrals and their relics a little bit like modern day theme parks, I suppose, you know, the better rides you have, the better attractions you have, i.e. the better relics you have, the more of an important or, or famous saint you have, the more people are going to come through your doors and get and give money essentially. And so that's why they would have usually their great patron. And then they would have a couple of relics um, on the side so that you could visit several stops en route within the church and give as much money as possible. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. 
The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. There's a really interesting story of York venerating the Lancastrian king and saint, Henry VI, which really gets up the nose of uh, the Yorkist king, Edward IV, who obviously has booted Henry off of his throne in the Wars of the Roses. Um, can you tell us about it? Yeah, I mean, this is, is an interesting one because York... York had its saint. It had St. William of York, um, the former Archbishop William Fitzherbert. But the Lancastrian king, um, Henry VI, he he started even to outshine St. William. And once he had been found dead um, in 1471, likely in London's Wakefield Tower. And, you know, he had great conflict, of course, with Edward IV, the the Yorkist king. Quite soon after Henry had been supposedly murdered, um, he started to be honoured as a saint and his posthumous cult grew um, within York. Um, He was, of course, an extremely dedicated um, Catholic man, say, prior prior to his murder. Um, And veneration of him at York centred on the choir screen. And because within it, there is... um, a sort of royal army, if you will, of 15 statues from William the Conqueror right through to Henry VI. And therefore his statue became that object of veneration. And people would go up and, and light lights before it and give op- offerings. So it became a sort of sacred idol, did this statue. Um, but so intense were was the veneration towards him that it really annoyed Edward. Um, and he commanded the Archbishop of York, Lawrence Booth, who had switched sides, essentially, from Yorkist to Lancastrian. Um, sorry, Lancastrian to Yorkist, I should say. Uh, throughout his his tenure, um, he, he commanded him to stop this devotion to the statue as unwelcome devotion and contempt for the church, really, um, and disparagement of Edward's rule. So the statue was removed. And it wasn't even reinstated until the early 19th century. So I think the reason for this is simply just considering he he was sort of put forth with Henry as as a martyr. And they do this with um, with Scrope, Archbishop Scrope as well, um, who's all part and parcel of the um, Wars of the Roses. He got involved, too. So I think that they were looking. I don't want I don't want to say that they were sort of worshipping the underdogs but it does see, seem at york that, that that is that is the case particularly if they are highly devout highly devout men before they are martyred now that's really fascinating um, about henry particularly isn't it because he's someone who had well such a poor reputation really um you know throughout his reign and and edward you know as we know um was able to usurp and, and get the crown and various other things coming and going during the wars so um yeah there's such a kind of i guess an irony in there that someone so unpopular at times in the country in life because of the nature of his death his violent death then in his death he you know becomes a saint and is venerated it's um yeah really interesting Mm, yeah exactly but but i suppose if given that york only had saint william of york and there's still some debate whether saint william of york's cult extended beyond the city limits essentially the city walls um this may have been a way to 
garner popularity um, because he was, you know, a royal. He was a monarch. And there was all of this, the the issues, the conflicts going on and, and rumbling at that time. And York was, you know, it was um, the headquarters of, of the North, really. Um, you know, they had King's Manor where the Council of the North eventually you know, did sit. And the chapter house at York, um, various parliaments even sat within that chapter house. So it was an extremely important place. And I think it was there their way of trying to, as I say, garner another saint didn't happen, of course, in the end, but seems to be, seems to be what, what was occurring. And if we go on now to um, to some of the big events our listeners um, may, well, probably will be aware of um, in these cathedrals histories, so things like um, Henry VIII's dissolution of the monastery, such a monumental change um, and um, Oliver Cromwell's victory in the Civil War and the impacts of that. I mean, how would you kind of weigh those up in terms of thinking about the different catastrophes that have have impacted cathedrals during um, medieval England? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. And I, I tend to I tend to lean towards the six, I say the 16th century Reformation. I'll put it that way. Now, I would argue that, of course, Henry was the catalyst. The break with Rome was the catalyst, of course. And, you know, many, what we have to remember is a lot of the cathedrals were um, abbey churches, essentially. They were monasteries. Durham, for example, Durham Cathedral Priory. Uh, Canterbury was Christchurch. These were priories. And then we also had secular cathedrals. So they were run by a dean and, and um, a chapter of canons, such as well, Salisbury um, and York as well. Now, what's interesting then is, yes, of course, technically they, they become, you know, the, the monastic ones either change and become secular or they get dismantled altogether. Um, so in that respect, things change. However, I think it's more Edward's reign, um, his Henry's son, Edward VI, that, that really is um, uh, the problem when it comes to churches and cathedrals in England, of course, in England. And the reason for this is when Henry broke with Rome, yes, he got rid of relics, he got rid of saints and pilgrimage and all that, which was, of course, the the drivers behind the sort of um, fundraising uh, of medieval cathedrals. You know, once you got rid of those um largely due to the corruption that was had been occurring over several hundred years. Um, but he was a bit wishy-washy, if you will, when it came to images um, and venerating images um, and, and similar to that. Um, when Edward came in, though, the, sort of, he, the gloves were off and he stopped images. Henry had said only feigned images, as he called them, were not allowed and were, were prohibited. And what that meant was in the medieval era um images and um statues etc of saints holy family were seen to if you looked at them to impact you in a in a physical manner through their eyes and through their hands they had a power that could impact you and affect you that's how their sort of intercessory power um would be unleashed on you if that makes some sort of sense so reciprocal power but when Edward comes along and he says, no, no images are allowed, what that meant was you'll see a lot of images that um, whether their faces or their heads are gouged out, their eyes are gouged out or whitewashed over or leaded out in plain glass if it's stained glass, their hands are crushed. And, and 
the actual images, though, are still left as sort of examples of being powerless, you know, autonomous figures. And the reason for that is, as I say, is their their power was seen to be completely um, removed by getting rid of the face and the hands. So as a result, that really was the end of um, the cult of sa- the cult of the saints, cult of relics in the Middle Ages, and therefore what had been the, as I say, the driver um, and the sort of part and parcel of the economic ent- enterprise which drove the cathedral building of the Middle Ages. So that's why I always kind of lean towards Edward that really put, you know, really stuck the knife in. And, and that's also why our parish churches are sort of left um, with choir screens and stained glass in various states of survival. That's amazing. And um, also, I like, I think it's not only in cathedral building, is it? It's I just vague recollections of the there's a building at Eton College that obviously is started in amazing red brick um, by Henry the Sixth, and then Edward the Fourth just finishes it off with uh, grey stone, and it's just like a monument to his stinginess, the way it changes <laughs> halfway up. Um, yeah. Actually, it's lucky he didn't bulldoze the place. So apparently, that church was supposed to be twice the size, and it was supposed to be on a level with Winchester, um, but it actually got drastically reduced on the construction. I have to ask you, um, which one really hurt to leave out of the book? What didn't make it in? There were actually four that didn't make really? it in. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, no, I say there were four that I, as in, I wrote an extra four chapters. Um, and those were, let me remember, um, Venice, Saint-Chapelle, technically not a cathedral, but it's just such a magnificent building. I wanted to include it. Um, Milan and, no, not Milan, Madrid. And there's one more. There's one more which will come to me, which will come. To, oh, St. Basil's, um, Moscow. So those are the four that I did write. And, and um, yes, it was Milan. And had to, had to leave out. Um, so they, the Saint-Chapelle, I think is, it sort of ties together even still a lot of the chapters because of the passion relics. And therefore it was built essentially as a great big shrine, um, you know, big superstructure shrine, um, for the passion, to house the, the passion relics. Um, and it ties into so many others. It ties into Westminster Abbey because when they get, um, part of the passion relics they want to outdo Saint Chapelle, so, you know, it, it creates a load of rivalry. So I think that was the real issue. I ha- However, Durham Cathedral I didn't include only because I've written about it in previous books and I've done it, you know, done it to death. Um, but I really did want to include Durham Cathedral as well because it's that sort of great example of, let's say, the Romanesque style. Um, and the rivalry between Cuthbert and Beckett, I think, is so fascinating. And the move from Lindisfarne, that's where Cuthbert was originally interred. Um, Lincoln Cathedral, so interesting. They're all interesting. This is the point. So I want to include them all. I know there needs to be another book. What's your favourite anecdote in the whole book? Favourite anecdote? Oh, that's too difficult. <laughs> Um, what I do, like, what I find really interesting is, gosh, there, there, honestly, there are so many, um, is one thing I didn't really truly understand until I got to grips with the research on Westminster Abbey was the fact that it was essentially um, fake news before fake news existed. That was the tale behind it. Mm. And 
because um, Westminster didn't have a saint, uh, they wanted Edward the Confessor to become their saint. They had his uncorrupt body. Um, And so uh, because his body was incorrupt, they decided to try and promote him and link him back to, um, you know, because he was the last king, the royal um, and royal of the house of Wessex. But they didn't really have a link to him as such. They wanted to promote a link with this pre-conquest, you know, royal dynasty, the House of Wessex. And, you know, he also has ties to the Conqueror. So they started creating charters, or should I say forging um, Mm. charters. Um, All these false documents they put together, the monks started toiling away at this sort of um, propaganda machine, if you will. Um, And as a result, it worked. And they got their papal bull in 1161 for Edward's canonization, and he became a saint. So you you see everything. Another another really interesting one um, I will point out is the cult of carts, as it's called, which is Chartres, um, also mentioned Saint-Denis, Amiens. The idea is that, well, in fact, it's depicted in all the, many of the stained glass windows are that everyday people were involved in constructing these great, you know, these great masses, these great stone masses. And the cult of carts is, is what sort of ended up being a sort of recruitment drive, I suppose, um, in that, you know, everyone from prince to pauper got involved in them and therefore they are depicted within the actual cathedral buildings. Um, there's some dispute over whether this was actually the case, but I mean, I could go on. There are so many anecdotes. So I think that I think that's a, in, important to note that every chapter has a really interesting, juicy anecdote. And I'm sure you're just enjoying Heaven and Earth being out in the world. But can we have any hints on where your research may be taking you next? Have you got any other kind of book ideas in the pipeline? Um, yes, the the might have the contract may have already been signed Um, (laughs) let's just say I can't say too much but let's just say it's about relics oh amazing yes yeah that's all I can say I'm afraid (laughs) oh we've come to the end of today's episode thank you so much Emma for joining Alex and I and it's been a pleasure where can our listeners find heaven and earth where can they purchase it and um also are you doing any book tours and where they can follow you on social media yeah um so on social media i'm on twitter and instagram and facebook all of them um i'm emma underscore j underscore wells on twitter and wells underscore emma i think it is on instagram um but my website is just emmajwells.com so you can get links to everything the book is available essentially in all good bookstores from Amazon to Bookshop to independent retailers, wherever you want to purchase foils, etc. And I have links within my the bios on my social media to all different bookstores that you can actually pick it up from. Book tour is actually almost finished, and not that I'm glad. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I should say, but I have been all over the country. I think the only thing I've got, a couple I've got left are um, Ilkley, um, Ilkley at the middle of October. Um, I have, I know I'm doing the, the Church Times Festival, that's in February next year. I've got Oxford Waterstones coming up in November. And I'm sure I'm missing one. Um, maybe another one somewhere, but uh, you can find it all on my website. I keep trying to update it and through across my social media, I, I keep everyone informed. 
Um, but I, I've pretty much been to every corner already. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Oh, thanks so much, Emma. It's been a, a pleasure having you on the podcast and I'm sure we'll be chatting to you again soon. It's great. Thanks ever so much for having me. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.